Welcome to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy Class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. All right, welcome everybody to the Old Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Schleck. This is episode number 35, and we're joined tonight with our esteemed classmate, uh, Brian Mackey, uh, Company A2. Brian, you there? Can you hear me okay? I am here. Yep. All right, great. Well, welcome to the Old Grad Podcast. I'm, I'm happy to have you on. I hope you had a great weekend. Um, how's everything in your life going on? Enduring the pandemic as best we can. Uh, <laughs> Crazy times, but glad to connect with everybody and uh, appreciate you pulling this together yet again for another episode. Well, thanks. Um, hey, how's your it? How's your family? Everybody safe? Everybody healthy in your in your world of friends and family? Yeah, every, everybody's pretty good. Uh, my son's a college senior. He is across the street from campus, attending college remotely uh, in Baltimore. So we brought him back there about a month ago. Where's he at? Uh, he's a senior at Johns Hopkins in wow. the center of Baltimore. That's awesome. That's great. And what was he studying there? He is a history major applying to law schools. He's working on applications uh, right now. So um, he'll graduate in December. So literally yesterday we wrote our last tuition check. So I guess uh, we celebrate that here on the podcast. For the whole year or for like just for the half a year? Well, he's not, he, he graduates in December. So oh, so you're it. done. You're done, done. You're done, done. Yeah. Wow, and he's and your he's one. A, he's, he's your one and only, only right? Child. Yeah, he's only child, so that, that's it. Uh, but he'll be in law school probably a year from now. Yep. Does he get that? Uh, is that part of the um, the um, Mackie like um, child tuition package too? Like you know, little help from parents for law school, or how's that going to work? I think negotiations are ongoing, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we'll see. We we appreciate the fact that he got done a semester early and got us off the hook for the spring. Where is he looking to go to law school? Uh, we'll see. He's putting his packets together, but uh, he, he has high aspirations for some very, very tough schools to get into. So stressful time for him, uh, exciting time for the parents to kind of observe and uh, see how it goes. Is it less stressful than it was the first time, like for college? Like the stress of the, like, now that he's 22, he's a little bit more mature, yeah. he could like handle yeah. the kind of, like, how how is it that at that age? It's a, it's a, unpleasant reminder of the whole college thing um you know with with friends of ours that have younger kids i jokingly tell them to have them start writing the essays today even if they're like 10 or 12 years old because it's just such a stressful time for everybody involved so this isn't as bad because like you said he's you know he's been through it and he knows what he's doing but uh it, it's it's very similar yeah well this i'm going into my my third child's senior year in high school. So I've been through it twice before, you know, the whole stress culture, the whole thing. It's not fun. It is not fun at all. I, I said to myself a little bit with, with the previous two, so we put too much pressure on these kids with the schools and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I don't remember it being the same way when we were their age, but I suppose it was to some degree, but it's just a lot of, a lot I, I of, don't think it, I don't think it was anything like what's going on today. I mean, I don't remember this kind of stuff when we were, whatever, take an SAT or write an applications or whatever. Only, only blogging. Are you better at it after the third? No, I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I was kind of hoping that that he was going to be. I don't know. I mean, my, all my kids are all my kids are different, and they're also the same in a lot of ways too. You know, so. Uh, but with what I said was we, we just put way too much stress, way too much you know pressure on these kids, and like they're gonna, they're going if they have a good work ethic and they work hard, they're gonna do great in life. That's all that matters, you know. It doesn't matter where right. you go to school. Yeah. That, that being said, I mean Johns Hopkins, you know, I'm sure he was you know looking at a bunch of schools like that, and to have gotten into that school, that's a you know super competitive school to get into. So you've been through it once before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Exactly. Yep. So, so I can't quite see all of the classmates that are on with us tonight, but I do see we've got um, quite a few. We've got a nine or ten people, I think, that are joining us right now. Um, yeah. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta hit pause on this to make sure that I don't. Uh, <clears throat> I have to uh, get, I guess, feedback if I'm playing it at the same time. So let me just do this. So that works. Yeah, so Matt Lewis is commenting, and and Brad Woods. He, Brad Woods is in your company, right? A two. Yeah. He yep. was on. He was on before. He's another. So you're my third, at least third Spartan I've had on. Actually, I think fourth because I had you, Becky, Brad, and um, and Doug, Doug Winton. I think have been all on the podcast in some various degree. Doug was a, with a group of people. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, and I know you're looking for some diversity, so I'm. I'm happy to be the voice of the December graduating class of December 1991. Yeah, I am so looking forward to this because you and I talked. <clears throat> you have a chip on your shoulder. You have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about being a December grad, and I am looking I forward to talking about that. Yeah, because it's great. Because I mentioned a little bit once before about how like we want to hear about these different kind of diverse cadet experiences, and one experience that we haven't. Uh, well, you know, we had well Ingrid Powell talked a little bit about it, but she would she yeah. didn't really focus on it the way that that. Um, I think we're going to yeah. do we're going to tonight, but it really is a unique experience being a December grad uh, in a certain and and it has manifestations and a lot of other things that happen like in the army and later in life and everything else. So I'm looking forward to talking about that tonight. Yeah, it's true, and I think we all you know as kids saw December grads. I mean, there was always somebody around in your company or whatever. But uh, yeah, seeing it from the other side as a December grad was certainly a unique experience. So we're going to get to that, that we're going to talk specifically about the December grad, but let me, let me hear about, you know, life right now. You're living in Lexington, Kentucky. You're running an engineering company. Um, you and your wife living down there, your son's up in Baltimore. Like, give me the whole, you're not from Kentucky, right? You just, you took that. No, big... no. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm from New Jersey, Pennsylvania. My wife's from Milwaukee actually. So we met right as I was finishing up at Fort Bragg. Um, and we, we lived a couple different places, Philly, Connecticut, but um, we spent 15 years in Roanoke, Virginia. And my son basically grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, which is about four hours outside of D.C., like Roanoke, Blacksburg, Virginia Tech. And when he finished high school, uh, that was three years ago, and we started looking around and um, found a, an opportunity here in Lexington, Kentucky. wasn't really focused on Lexington, but it just also happens to be midway between my family, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and my wife's family in the Milwaukee area. And it's a beautiful part of the country. I'm not sure I'd ever really spent more than a few minutes in Kentucky prior to moving here three years ago. So we've been here almost three years. Hold on a second. I'm not a geography stud, but you're saying <laughs> Mil Kentucky is midway between Milwaukee and New Jersey? Yes. Well, I mean, we are just south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. 
So, but it's a straight shot, like to to to, it's a straight shot east west to New Jersey, but Milwaukee's up north, right? Yeah, I mean it's it's west and north of us here. It's like it's like equidistant. It's probably equidistant, but you're not in between. Yeah, like if you're if you're to draw a line between Milwaukee and New Jersey, you're not going to hit. Kentucky last and, I checked. Probably more more accurately between Milwaukee and Baltimore is probably a better state right. Where okay, my son is, where my son is. So how what's a Milwaukee girl doing hanging out at Fort Bragg? Was she in the military or something? How'd you, how'd you meet her down there? No. So um, I was at Fort Bragg and I went home to Pennsylvania for a Christmas break, and I saw some friends from high school, and one of them. Um, was a year ahead of me in high school. And she said, Oh, you're at Fort Bragg. I'm in grad school in Chapel Hill. And I said, well, I'm in Fort Bragg with about 50,000 guys and you're in Chapel Hill. So we, at my house, we had, it was me and Joel Quinn. It was E two ninety one. Shaw Yoshitani lived there also, but I think he had moved out and got married, but we basically had a party invited my friend and some of her friends uh, to come to the party. And my wife, Kim decided not to show up. Um, so the party was about 50 paratroopers and Heidi and Colleen. That was the attendees at the party, but Kim didn't show up. She was like, I'm not doing that. So a month later I went up to Chapel Hill and met Kim at a party that my friend Heidi had. And so we met that way and she was in grad school as I was finishing up at Fort Bragg. So you met this, so she is through a mutual friend from high school that you got connected that, that she knew this person. They were in the same grad school program. A friend of mine from high school in Pennsylvania and Kim, who was attending UNC, but had gone to UW uh, in Wisconsin as undergrad. That reminds me how I met my wife a little bit too, because I met my wife through a friend from high school. Uh, and so when I got, when I was getting out of the army, I reconnected with this friend from high school and, and then that's how I met my wife. But it didn't go down so well, actually, because my, my, my friends from high school then started telling my soon-to-be girlfriend, now wife, that I wasn't like the most uh, gentlemanly person in high school. She was like drilling some holes in my boat, like telling me, uh, tell, telling the old stories from back in the day. So did Bring you have any... High school, that's rough. I know, I know, I know. So did you have any of that going on? Because this was a high school friend that kind of knew this you from... high school friend. Now she did the intro. So I saw Kim four times. That was the first time. And I saw her three other times. But then I deployed to Jamaica for three months on a construction project. And before I got back, Kim had gone to England for the summer to work an internship for the summer. So our fifth date, I took a free flight out of Dover Air Force Base. I think I paid 10 bucks for a box lunch and we flew to England. And the fifth time we saw each other, we spent 10 days together in England and Ireland. Nice. Nice. It was, uh, it was putting a lot of chips in the middle of the table and see what happened. <laughs> well, good for you. It worked out yeah. it worked out pretty well. Now you've been married for what, twenty four years, twenty five years? Yeah, since ninety six, so twenty four years. Wow, congratulations. That's that's great. That's great. Um and so you, you mentioned you deployed uh to Jamaica with a were you, what type of your your Corps of Engineers, right? Yeah, I was Corps of Engineers, 27th Engineer Battalion at Fort Bragg. So that was a construction um, a construction company that you were part of? We had uh, two platoons of 12 Bravos combat engineers and a platoon of equipment operators. You know, anything, 
light equipment you could drop out of an airplane, uh, small bulldozers, road graders, et cetera. JD-410s. I think it was JD-410. That's what it was, right? JD-410, exactly. So, yeah, we did it. We led a project down there with a bunch of, uh, it was a joint task force. We had Marine, Navy, and others. But um, we spent three months down there building three buildings for the Jamaicans. That was an awesome project. The Jamaican people are just fantastic, every single one of them. Did you get involved with the J Lots thing too? I think I think it was called J Lots, right? Where you did the like, um, I thought that was it. It's a Fort Bragg. I thought I, no, it wasn't Fort Bragg. There was a big sort of like um, uh, engineer exercise where you're you're bringing in stuff over the beaches and stuff. Obviously not Fort Bragg, but it was. Uh, what the hell was that? I, obviously, you 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 would know because you would J Lots would have sprung a um, a memory for you. I think. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. We, we were we were mostly, you know, brigade of engineers, about 2,000 engineers in the 20th Engineer Brigade as part of the 18th Airborne Corps. Our company had the specific mission of rough terrain parachuting. So we would parachute into trees on purpose, which was generally nuts. Uh, but the idea was if you needed to clear an area for a helicopter to land, we would bring chainsaws and plastic explosives. After you jumped in into the trees? We would jump into the trees. And the ideal thing was to get hung in a, between two trees and then rappel down. What you didn't want to do was the wily coyote right into one tree and slide down like a fireman. That'd be the bad idea. So if you would rappel down, leave your parachute up in the trees, and then you'd use chainsaws on the small trees and plastic explosives on the big trees, and then you'd bring, bring in a bulldozer by helicopter in two pieces, uh, the engine and the tracks and the blade, and you'd put it together and then just keep pushing things out. Um, to make more room for more helicopters and more good guys. This sounds so badass. So how many jumps do you have, um, and how many jumps were into trees, deliberately into trees? Um, t- total, I did about 38 jumps, I think, when I was there. Three of those were rough terrain. And we, we did it once a year, and, you know, as Company XO and whatever, a lot of my time was throwing people out of the aircraft uh, versus getting recertified, but... Yeah, you could have somebody with 100 or more jumps. Um, you put them into the trees, you've got their full attention of you what's gotta, going on. you got to be suited up, right? you got like special equipment and stuff like that to you jump have, in. You like, have a padded suit and a, basically a motorcycle helmet with a face cage. Um, you're essentially a smoke jumper. Um, and, you know, there, there's no drop zone. It's like, hey, just go whenever you want because you're just going to land in the trees. I can't even imagine this, right? So, so, so you, you have three of these rough terrain jumps. Were any of them like... You do the wily coyote, or like like what happened with these things? But like, is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Give me like the whole play by play. Yeah, it's, it's, it's daytime, and we didn't have more injuries than regular jumps, but we had more serious injuries. If you got hurt, you got really hurt because you tumbled through the tree. So what happened? Like so, like yeah, what, what kind of a tree was it? Was it like a you know like a <laughs> like evergreen tree, like a, or like it was like a you know oak tree? What the yeah. hell happened? Yeah, there's no oak trees, thank goodness. These are Fort Bragg pine trees, which are supposed to be, they're reportedly softwood, but if you come into them in a parachute, uh, you know it. Yeah, I mean, our parachutes were steerable, you know, like kind of like, you, you know, you see at a football game or whatever, so they're better than the average military parachute, but you have a forward thrust of about seven knots. So if you don't do anything, you're moving, if there's no wind, I should say, you're going forward at seven knots. And you want to face into the wind. So if the wind is going 10 knots, 
and you face into the wind, seven minus 10, you're going backwards three. Well, if you let go of your controls, that parachute will naturally run with the wind and you will be flying. 17 knots. 17 knots. Good, yeah, right there. You'll be flying into the trees. Uh, 17 may not sound like much in a car, but um, yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. That's pretty intense. Yeah, it's good stuff. But definitely data. Definitely data. And so were you like, you said a lot of times because you're the XO, you were doing like, um, you're pushing people out. You're standing in the door basically just pushing people out. Yeah, or? actually the, the, the day I met my wife um, was the day we did a rough terrain jump. It was, um, we, we would do it on a Saturday because, you know, all the other drop zones in the area would be closed so we could do our crazy stuff. And I was going up and down that helicopter since, you know, I don't know, 6 or 7 a.m. all afternoon. And I was basically windburned. And then I drove up to uh, Chapel Hill first time I met my wife, and I was kind of windburned and sunburned, and and I was I was tired, I was wiped out, and she was like, "Yeah, you were you were pretty boring." I was like, "Well, <laughs> I was doing this, I was doing this, these uh, ups and downs on a on a, in a Huey for uh, six or eight hours." Wow, that's incredible. Well, I I mean I I'm a total I'm a five jump chump. I didn't even jump in ranger school. I just was lucky. Like I didn't have to like. You know, like the wind happened, I canceled one jump, yeah. and another jump, some yeah. general wanted to jump, yeah. so it took my shoot. I was like the one out of like the whole thing that said, Schleck, take your shoot off. You're walking. And you're walking. I was like, Yes, sir, thank you. Or yes, sir. And then um yeah. and then and then I think I told the story about um with with Bernie Sieg Seeger. I mean I was in the I was I got waved off because of the wind, but he went out and almost like he broke his tailbone on that on that jump. Which yeah. was uh which was nuts. Which was nuts. Yeah. So it would have been it would have been cool to jump jump some more. I mean, you know, other than the five jump jump, but I got uh, some some more stories to talk about with, with that. So yeah, yeah. So so Brian, you're originally from New Jersey. So you got appointed to go to West Point from New Jersey, or was it because you? I think you said Pennsylvania and New Jersey that those are the two places yeah, you grew up. I, I um I have five older brothers and sisters, and you know, we all grew up in New Jersey. But when I was 16, right right after 10th grade. Uh, we moved to Pennsylvania. So my, my brothers and sisters were out of the house. So basically my parents and I moved uh, from North Jersey up to Northern Pennsylvania. So I did 11th and 12th grade in Pennsylvania, um, applied to West Point from there. I did the summer West Point program after 11th grade uh, from Pennsylvania. So yeah, everything, everything regarding West Point was out of Pennsylvania. You said you did the summer West Point program and the summer Navy program. You did two of them. Yeah. So I, I went, I moved up there ten, after 10th grade and my, school schedule was so screwed up because, you know, the transfer from one school to the other. So I was like, I want to get out of here. So summer after 11th grade, I was like, well, I'll do this Navy program. I'll do this army program. I was just trying to kind of not be in Pennsylvania, but I went to the Navy program first. And, you know, I guess they have to kind of point this out to you when you're 16 years old. But the thing about the Naval Academy, when you graduate is you're in the United States Navy which I was not interested in whatsoever. And after five or six days at the Naval Academy, I was like, yeah, I have no interest in this whatsoever. And I thought about, well, how different can these two places be? Um, you know, all the institutions in the world, West Point and Annapolis, how, you know, how different can they be? Do I even bother to go to West Point for the program? But I went, you know, of course, I proceeded a week later, had one break in between, a one-week break in between. So I went to the West Point thing, and I just, I just enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, from that point forward, I was pretty much set on applying. 
Had, it, had anybody from your family ever gone to West Point or anything like that? No, um, we didn't know much about it. Um, my father had been in the army, uh, for a short while after, uh, college. Um, so, you know, there was a little bit of knowledge about West Point, but no more than, you know, anybody else just kind of, uh, the reputation and that kind of thing until I spent some time there. I mean, we'd been to probably a football game or two, but that was about it. And you're, since you're the youngest of five or six, you said youngest of six. So all those, all those kids were out of the house through college or whatever, like they were done. Like was, was, was West Point also a consideration because of the economics? Well, I'm sure it was a relief to my parents. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, at that point, probably four of my siblings were out of college. My brother in age that's closest to me was, uh, at Fordham at the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean that, that, that wasn't really the driver, but it was just an opportunity that was interesting. So, uh, off I went. Are any of those siblings, uh, like you see them often? Are they, they still in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area? Are they all over the country or where are they at? Yeah, they're, they're in that area, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Um, one's in Massachusetts. So they're all pretty close. My mom's outside of Philly. Yeah, on the, the west of Philly in the suburbs. So everybody's kind of in that area, and I'm kind of the one that moved moved away a little bit. You said your mom is, is your your dad still with us, or is he? No, my dad. My dad died about six years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, he was a he was a proud West Point dad and all that for sure. Yeah, we're getting to that age. You know, a lot a lot of people's parents, you know, are getting to that. Uh, you know, getting older. I lost my dad five years ago. It's hard to believe. My mm-hmm. God, I mean, but um, you know, anyway. Um, yeah. So mom, mom's living, mom's like by herself, living mm-hmm. like independently, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, she's doing well. She's uh, she's been in the same place for a long time, and uh, and not too far from one of my sisters. So that's pretty cool. But uh, you know, normally in the summer we all get together for a, a long weekend in Pennsylvania. You know, all the grandkids and all that. But obviously this summer that got that got kibosh. So we're we're talking about next year. You got to keep those old, old, old family members too. You got to keep them safe. You know, my mom, I have not been anywhere. Like I've not been within 10 feet of my mother for, well, I guess I drove her someplace once, but to a doctor's appointment, but I mean, it's trying yeah. to keep them safe. And like New Jersey here is like the epicenter. Uh, or at least it was several months ago of COVID. What a crazy yeah. thing. What a crazy world we're in here. I mean, it's like this whole, you know, living with this global pandemic how has it affected you in terms of your work? Because you're running a company, right? Tell me about the company that you're running and how you're having to lead people through this like seismic change in, in the day-to-day. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I mean, everybody's figured out kind of how to adapt. We are a manufacturing company, so we have people in the facility. Um, you know, we don't have people shoulder to shoulder like some places. We're able to kind of space people out. Um, you know, and if you're in the office, it's one person per room and all this kind of stuff. And we've kind of been creative with creating some spaces and things like that. And I'm bouncing back and forth. I mean, I'm at home or I'm in there, you know, sometimes we'll have a meeting standing outside in the parking lot. It looks like, you know, it looks like we're playing ring around the rosy or something, but you know, we can stand out there in the, in the breeze and just have a real conversation without worrying about it. What kind of stuff do you guys make? We make, uh, nano materials. Uh, so we have a process that makes very small particle size metal oxides and ceramics. So we're in the 50 to 100 nanometer particle size range, and we're providing raw materials of high quality and high purity to various manufacturers. So to give you an idea, I mean, you know, the, the diameter of a human hair is about 70,000 nanometers. 
and we're making material that's about 50 to 100 nanometer diameter. Um, so you have very high surface area relative to the volume. Sounds pretty uh, highly technical. And, and It makes me wish I paid more attention to chemistry about 25, 30 years ago because uh, I, I don't really, you know, my job is to keep the smart people happy. And how did you get this job? I mean, uh, you, you didn't grow up through this industry or anything. Like, you got you got recruited in to be the head honcho, right? Yeah, in Virginia, I worked uh, for about ten years at a company that different different industry, but we designed and manufactured electromechanical products, uh, magnetic bearings. So, if you had a high speed motor, you could levitate the shaft on the magnets, so there was no contact and no friction between the rotating part and the stationary part. And we sold that company to Dresser Rand, and then Dresser Rand became part of Siemens. So eventually, we went from being a small business. Eventually, I was the general manager of a business unit within Dresser Rand and within Siemens. And then uh, this company, you know, it was like, hey, it's a technology, but we really need to figure out how to how to sell more product and and run more efficiently and all those kind of things. So that that's kind of what translated, not the actual technology itself, but uh, some of the management of it. And you said, uh, uh, you know, we have this, we did this pre-call and you, you filled out a lot of the, a lot of the information about like things that uh, where West Point has been influential. And you talk about, you know, the, uh, the idea of leadership, of leading people, that that's the real kind of takeaway you had from your time at West Point, your time in the army. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how leadership has affected your, um, your work or your, your, yeah. your way of life basically is, is about leadership? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the experience we've all been through, I think the most complex task that you have is is managing a group of diverse people to accomplish great things, especially in challenging times like we've got going on now. And I think we all, you know, went through that process of learning some of the, the nuts and bolts of that. And, uh, you know, that's what I enjoy doing. Hey, everybody shows up in the morning because, you know, of what we've got going on, but they've got their own situation at home. Everybody's got something at home. It might be financial problems or health or relationships or whatever, but you know, you come to work and you, you get it done. And so trying to respect the personal side of it, but also uh, see what we can do on the work side of it. I mean, to me, that's fun. And the technical side of it is just, you know, just kind of another layer layer of challenge at the engineering degree from West Point, kind of a technical background. So yeah, that, that's what I enjoy doing is, is figuring all that stuff out and uh, being able to kind of spike the football and get the job done with a group of people. How, how big is the company? How many, how many people? Uh, we're small. Just, we're just a few dozen people. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're providing product to, you know, diverse manufacturers around the world as well as DOD and, and others. So when you took over this job, did you take it over? Like, did you have a bunch of direct reports that you inherited or did you have to, um, you know, or were you bringing people in and hiring people or how, how did that work? Well, one thing I didn't realize when I joined the company was uh, kind of the full state of things that were going on. Uh, I mean, to give you an example, the, the, I did the math later. The average turnover rate um, before I got there for three years, the average annual turnover rate was 85%. Yikes. So, yikes. Um, you know, there was one 12-month period. It was, you know, whatever, 120, 130%. So everybody left and some of the new guys left, you know, during that 12-month period. So when you have a technology like ours, you know, the value is what people know. Um, and when you have that kind of turnover, you, you just can't survive. So we had to, you know, we had to address that. We had to deal with all those kind of things and uh, and and reverse that, which we have. And it's it's not rocket science. It's treating people, you know, with respect. And, and uh, you know, the hardest part of the job should be the job, not the office politics, and not the how much of a jerk the guy is that you're working for, or anything like that. 
Yeah, I like, <clears throat> I kind of like what you said too. You said like everybody's got something, you know, people come to work, they, you know, you have no idea what's going on in their life, but you know, you may have some idea you try to you know look out for them. Like, like basically like soldiers, you know, and, and you mentioned here in these notes here too, you said your wife says often like, um, how she puts it, everybody's got something, everybody's got yeah. something, you know, and that, that's, uh, I think that's so yeah. true. Like you may look at some like, you know, perfect little, you know, picture of like some, some family, but there's always, everybody's got issues, you know? Yeah, it's true. I mean, and it's true for us too, uh, Kim and I, you know, he, like you said, you see somebody walking down the street and you say, Hey, they got it all going on. Uh, the fact is you just don't know them that well because you get to know somebody on a more personal level and you know, uh, whatever the case is, they've, they've got something that they're worried about, something that they're dealing with. And, uh, you know, and, I, and that's part of the reason, I mean, this podcast is so great. I mean, you're pulling our classmates together, giving everybody an opportunity to talk to each other and reach out. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Let's, that's a good point. Let me just mention too, I oftentimes lead in with this, but you know, old grad podcast is my 35th, I think it's the 35th or 36th episode. Um, the purpose of this thing is really to help connect us as classmates. It's to draw attention to our class gift. That was the, or that was the real genesis of it. Cause I'm our class giving officer. It's to help us remember our fallen classmates and to remember and keep us, you know, closer connected to West point. Um, speaking of the fundraising. So we just completed the, uh, the annual uh, All Academy Challenge. West Point came in second place again, but we beat Navy at least, but we we lost the Merchant Marine Academy by a few percentage points. Our class, we had about a 60%, well, we actually were about, we're about 67% participation rate for our class, our class gift. Um, I'm hoping that by our 30th reunion, we're going to be at 91%. That's my goal. If we get there, our class will be the most generous class in the history of West Point. Uh, we're gonna, we, our, our class gift is to give uh, $1.5 million to the Cyber Institute, which is gonna be named in the name of our fallen classmate, Bill Hecker. And that chair is somebody that's gonna help to sort of like steer the, the, um, the direction of the Cyber Institute, but also to kind of bridge the civ-military divide because there's, a lot, there's certain things that military officers just cannot do uh, while on active duty and you need to be able to connect them to like the commercial interests. And so this person is a retired military person and it's, it allows them to kind of like speak both languages and kind of connect back and forth. And so that's the purpose of our class giving. Um, and so I'm hopeful that next year when we have our 30th reunion, we will be there with a big check for something at or around $1.5 million dollars and at a 91% uh, participation rate. So that's what I'm hoping for. And Company A2, you guys are leading the way. I think that you may be the highest in 2nd Regiment or close to it. So you guys have done very good. Actually, I shouldn't say that C2 is probably the highest in 2nd Regiment, but you guys are doing, you guys are doing all right. So. Yeah, right. And thank you for participating. Thank you for, for being a uh, donor to our class. I appreciate that. Oh, you bet. So getting back to the arc of the podcast, you, we were talking before about your interest in going to West Point. You did the Naval, the Naval Academy exploration. You said, no way. You want to go to West Point. Is it true? Was boxing something that was of interest to you? You said, oh, I get to go. I get to, I get to do boxing. So I want to, I want to it, go it to was, West Point. It was, it was just sort of a, you know, represent, representative of the challenge of it, right? I mean, I could have gone off to a different school and gotten through the academics and that kind of thing. And it was like, well, hey, this was just, this is completely different. Um, you know, how many schools in the country are, are boxing as a mandatory class? And it was like, 
it was almost like the fact that I wasn't sure I could do that made it more interesting. I think it's still it's still a mandatory class, and I believe it's mandatory class today for the women as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I met some guy who, uh, I forget his name, he's a two-star general, retired, and his primary mission in life is to get boxing off of the curriculum at West Point. Why? He says that it is absolutely like the worst thing we could be doing because of brain injuries and concussions and like we 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 now know what we did not know back then and there's no excuse to keep having you know these kids box. That's what he said. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. <clears throat> It's interesting to hear, like, the, most of the time you hear these old grads, they, they're like, ah, they don't box enough. They should, you know, hit them with a two by four or some shit. Like, <laughs> these guys are a bunch of wimps. Yeah. You may, you may not get his way for a while. It's going to take a while. You know, speaking of which, I was, we were talking also on the pre call about, the, you know, this whole concept of the 50 year affiliate program that AOG is running. Yeah. It is, yeah. that is awesome. And so, for those who don't know about it, basically what happens is that, they take each incoming class to West Point and they pair them with their 50-year affiliate. So in their plebe year, you're meeting the graduates from 50 years before. And they're like kind of your mentors through West Point. They're, they come to all the major events. They're at your, they're at your um, uh, acceptance day. They're at your, you know, wh when you do recognition, I guess at the end of or in the middle of plebe year now. They come to Yearling Winter Weekend and um, the, um, what's the word I'm thinking about? We didn't have, they didn't make a big deal about this like 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 when we were there, but they make a big deal about it now. It's when you commit to be um, in the Army, your first day of your Cal year. And first I can't day of Cal year, yeah. Yeah, I don't know the name for it, but yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I don't even know the Affirmation. Word the affirmation Day. It's your Affirmation okay. Day. And they're, they're okay. big into that too. So yeah. I was thinking like, think about our... 50-year affiliate, if we had done that when we were cadets. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been the class of 1941. 1941. Yeah. 1941, these are the guys, and they were guys. There was no gals. These were the guys that landed in, in Normandy. These are the guys that jumped into, you know, um, yeah. the, you know they, 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 they scaled the... You know, they scaled the cliffs to Point to Hawk. They, you know, Nininger yeah, was... They were, they were at the places that all the Sally Ports are named for. Exactly. Exactly. Like Tate, Tate Rink. Tate Rink is named after somebody from the class of, uh, of 41. Um, two brothers, both, both, both made the mm -hmm. ultimate sacrifice. Both West Point graduates. Um, that's, Tate, that's Tate Arena. Uh, I think that's the hockey rink, right? Were you a hockey player? You're yeah. a hockey player, right? No, my roommate was. Who was that? Al Brenner. Okay. Stein, right? Stein. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so a quick, quick, um, I digress for a second here, but so I, I, I looked up the class of 41. So, you know, this guy Nininger, who the Nininger Award is named after, he was recipient of the Medal of Honor. Um, they had like several, you know, most, you know, they, a couple general officers, but um, it turns out there's a book written about this class. And it's called Black 41 because the class of 41, supposedly they were such pranksters. They called them like they, everybody had a black mark in the entire class because they were such, such, you know, like shysters or whatever. And, um, 
And so it opens with doing interviews with the class of 41 at our graduation parade. That like, like so the author had, was doing interviews with this class, you know, and uh, it was quite interesting to hear their perspectives. What they, what they could not get over a couple of these guys was that the, the Corps of Cadets was no longer um, sized by company. So back right. in the day, yeah. like A1 yeah. was the tallest company and, yeah. and M, it, it, they went A through M and M1 was like, they call them the runts, you know, the, the smallest company. Yeah. And they were sized that way. So when you look across the Corps of Cadets, it was like this nice, even sort of like, you know, and so they, they couldn't get their hands, they just couldn't get their heads around that. And they really couldn't get their heads around the fact that there were women out there too. That was their, you know, so, you know, maybe, maybe they have to like do a little bit of like, um, like training with these uh, older, older guys, you know, to be like, hey, listen, you got to like, you, you know, the world has changed, you know, for a lot of it for the better. Uh, and so you should just get with the times. Yeah. West Point ain't like it used to be and it never was, right? I mean, yeah. But that was interesting talking to that guy, that, that two-star general whose mission in life is like getting boxing removed from the curriculum. I don't think it's happened yet, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be an uphill push, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, so, so, you, so you get accepted to the West Point, you go, you know, basically you were like direct admit right out of high school. So what was that like? You show up your first day. Who was your roommate? Like, what was what was the story like in A2? Yeah. Um, four years in Bradley Barracks, short wing, starting with East Barracks. I mean, we were in the same place we were as a company, which seemed kind of unusual later. But, uh, yeah, my roommate was a prep school guy named Kerry McKelvey. He didn't graduate, but, uh, you know, he had it all figured out because he was a prep school guy. He knew what he was doing. I mean, I was, I was kind of just bumbling around and all that kind of stuff. But that was when they had the construction going on in the, the alleyway there between Bradley barracks and the mess hall. And we were on the ground floor and I remember there'd be construction guys right outside our window. And, uh, Carrie started buying having them buy food for us from the, basically the gut truck parked in the alley working on a construction project, which was, we, we felt like just, you know, we'd figure something out because we'd give these guys like five bucks and they'd go get a sandwich off the gut truck parked in the alley by Washington Hall. That's pretty sweet. That's pretty smart to do that. And that's a prepster would do something like that. They would no, be the uh, ones. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way Brian Mackey was doing that without, you know, Carrie saying, hey, let's throw this window open and call one of these guys over. I mean, you talk about getting if the door opens. We're yeah, He was like, no problem. We're going to get some food. It's funny. You know, the um, we, we also talked about this, too, is that the people that kind of like push the limits a little bit, they're the ones who seem to do really well in life and really well in the army too. Like, you know, basically that we, we were, we were remarking the fact that um, several of the people that in our class and also that we know of that were general officers were kind of the ones that were uh, pushing the limits there a little bit. Right. Yeah. My, my team leader, uh, first semester, um, a guy named Joe McGee, he was, he was kind of a nut. I mean, he was a spirit mission guy and I was like, no, I'm, I'm going back to sleep. But he was running around doing spirit missions all the time in the middle of the night during, you know, Navy week and all that kind of stuff. And now he's a, he's a two star in charge of the army talent management program. So there's, there's some sort of correlation there. I mean, you, you've mentioned it before, but it, it definitely lines up with Joe McGee. Well, I know, I mean, like obviously Johnny Braga, we mentioned him. He's a two star general running all special operations. He just basically passed the baton or passed the flag. He's no, he just came out of command of what was the, a two-star command in the Pacific. 
and now he's moving, I think, into some kind of other, you know, pretty high-profile job. But, you know, he and um, Omar Jones, class of uh, 92, and then Jim Eisenhower, class of 92, they were, the three of them were involved, one at Navy, um, the Omar Jones, and heisting the uh, goat. So, I mean, those guys were definitely taking risks back then, and obviously it uh, it's just, it's, it's pr- pretty interesting now that they're all general officers now. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's quite something. Maybe they just put that they stole the Navy goat and they just keep getting promoted. Maybe that's all. Tech. That's a pretty big <laughs> qualification. <laughs> pretty rare. Yeah. So tell me. So you were going through West Point, and then something happened that made you a December grad. So give me the give me the give me the lowdown there, because you know your situation. Oftentimes you hear about somebody becoming a December grad. It's it's either for academics or some other kind of like unique medical situation or something. So, so what happened, what happened with your situation? Yeah. So, um, made it through plebe year, figured out all that stuff, uh, the hard way, but made it through plebe year and then, you know, it's just kind of academics and let's get through this. But, um, Christmas break of sophomore year, I was home, you know, yearling year I was home and uh, out of nowhere had a uh, very large nosebleed, very spontaneous. I mean, it was like I was sitting at a kitchen table. It was like you took a full glass and just dumped it on on the table uh, of blood. So clearly something was wrong. Um, Ended up at the hospital, ended up with an MRI, and uh, determined that I had a a benign tumor, deep in the back of my sinuses, nasopharynx, ears, area. Um, you know, you could see it on the CT scan. It's kind of like big blob at the center of the image offset a little bit to the right, the right side of my head. So, um, you know, that was, that was on break. So I was a civilian hospital and they're like, yeah, you need to go down to Walter Reed. Um, so I ended up at Walter Reed. And the interesting thing about the tumor was, um, they're not really sure what causes it. Nobody really knows, but they think it's hormone related. So it's most prevalent in young adult males uh, is where you, you see, the, you know, kind of the numbers for this tumor. So the civilian doctor who diagnosed it, he knew what he was talking about. He, he was kind of impressive that he figured it out pretty quick, but he had literally never seen one and he was an older guy. But when I got to Walter Reed, they had seen them, uh, you know, maybe three in the last five years because, you know, young adult males is obviously military population. Um, so they said, well, um, you know, the, the, the imaging technology back then wasn't what it is today, but they were like, um, we're going to get this thing out. Uh, we're going to do whatever it takes to get it out. Um, it may affect how you, by the time we're done with you, it may affect how you breathe. And if you can't breathe normally, you can't speak normally because you, you know, you trap air at the top of your nasopharynx when you're speaking. And, um, we'll see what happens by the time we're done with surgery, but we know you're a West Point cadet, but don't necessarily expect your life from this path, from this time forward to be the path that you thought it would be. Wow. So these are, these are military docs that are telling you this basically. These are military doctors at Reed, you know, army captains and majors and, and colonels and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so I ended up uh, a few weeks later, uh, third week in January, having surgery at Walter Reed, and you know, put everything at West Point on hold. So, what they have to do, like, how, what, how do they physically remove the tumor? Yeah, um, it's not pretty. 
Um, they, they said what we're going to do, we have three plans depending on what it takes, but we're going to plan A is we're going to go above your teeth and under your upper lip. We're going to pull your upper lip and your nose back up to your eyes so that we can go above your teeth and in through your, you know, the nasal holes in your skull to get into your sinuses. Um, we hope we can get all that way. If we can't, we're going to make an incision. Uh, basically down the side of your nose from the inside corner of your eye to the corner of your lip and just kind of open you wide open. And if that's, if that doesn't work, we're not sure if it's penetrated the brain cavity. We may have to go in above your right ear and, uh, lift your brain out of the way and go in that way through the side. So obviously, I mean, looking at me, only option A was necessary. So th- is, were they going to figure this out when you're under the, under the knife or like there's try these yeah. th- yeah, wow. they, if we if they could get it all the first, the thing about it is you've got to get it all, or it will regenerate. If you do get it all, it doesn't come back. That's that's very clear. So they have to get it all, and they can't leave a you know a tiny bit of it or whatever. So they have to be able to visualize the whole thing, and it doesn't grow like a ball. It grows where there's space. So it was up into the sinus area. It was up into the right ear canal, up into my right ear. It was. It was at the back of the throat there, the nasopharynx area, but where exactly it had gotten to was only going to be determined during the surgery. Wow. And basically, I mean, thank, thank God we had the technology at the time to do what we needed to do because had you been, you know, Brian Mackey class of 1941. Yeah. It, it was all over, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what happens there, but it's, uh, it's not pretty. Yeah. I don't know how that plays out. Nothing, nothing good happens from there because this thing just continues to grow and, and it'll continue to kind of push things out of the way. Um, and you know, you, you end up in a very bad situation. So yes, fortunately the technology was there where they could figure it out and successfully remove it. I mean, they, you know, they, they tore me up pretty good. Um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty disfigured, but you can't see it from the outside. I mean, the, the center section of your, sinuses is called them it's called a medial turbinate i don't have one anymore on the right side because they had to take it um they took a nerve that it was kind of wrapped around the tumor was wrapped around I had to take the nerve with it so i don't have feeling on the right side of my face because of the nerve that comes under your eye to, to your cheek area so right side of my face is numb but you know sort of like who you know who cares because i survived the whole thing you know speaking of boxing imagine if this like like i guess uh you went through plea boxing, getting punched in the face a bunch of times, and nothing, no cra- crazy nosebleeds or anything else like that, right? That would have happened. No crazy nosebleeds. Um, I did have, you know, I did have symptoms that, in hindsight, 2020, I mean, I, I always thought I had like a, a, a allergy or a cold. I mean, I can go back to high school and remember times where I had trouble clearing my ear. You had to do that test for West Point, you know, the physical, you had to do all these things. You had to like hold your nose and blow so you could clear your ears. And I couldn't do that on the right side, the right-hand side. So I, I can tell you back in, what was that, 12th grade, that I already had, you know, the beginnings of it. continuing to grow. Yeah. And it, it didn't catch it. So so you get operated on in January, and you're basically a civilian that entire second semester, well, would have been second semester yearling year, come back as a cow. You, you came back as a cow then, basically, um, having not done your second semester of yearling year, right? Yeah, so I, you know, I was at Walter Reed. I spent a week in intensive care, uh, head looking like a basketball, um, eyes swollen shut, the whole thing. 
and got out of there and went home and, you know, recuperated. I ended up coming to West Point by the time it was, I was back to West Point, it was probably right before spring break just to like basically do paperwork or something. And, um, but to answer your question, yeah, I picked back up that summer with airborne school and drill cadet and was just glad to be, um, you know, physically fit and on my feet and, and avoid alternatives. But, um, yeah, I mean, I remember meeting with an academic advisor and he was like, Hey, we've been talking about you theoretically you could go to summer school for the next two years and add more classes to each of your remaining semesters. If you want to try to graduate on time. So you could cram your five remaining semesters into four. Um, and I said, I, I think that would be pretty nuts. And he said, yeah, that, that's what we think. But officially that's a choice that you could pursue. And I said, that, that sounds nuts. And he said, well, then you're a December. So you elected to be a December grad. That was a decision that was, you had the option to say, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. And that'll be my way of just not going crazy with having to do all those extra classes and staff and everything else. Right. Yeah, exactly. So from that point forward, uh, I was a December grad and I did, you know, I was back, I was just kind of back in the core cadet doing my thing as part of A2. And yeah, it was a, a cow cow year like everybody else. But you said yeah, that I, it, I it changed yeah. the, or, or you, it changed a lot of the dynamic because like we're always counting down the days of graduation and you know that like, you know, it's 250 and a butt days and then another six goddamn months, right? Like that's. <laughs> Yeah, the math didn't work. Um, and, you know, I felt pretty normal. I mean, I did, you know, I did branch night and all that kind of stuff and first assignment. I did all that stuff. But the, the time it started to get, you know, different was, you know, hey, 12 days till graduation, 11 days till graduation. And, you know, there's just so much excitement after four years of, of the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, um, not for me. You know, people like, hey, Mac, seven days left. And I'd be like, now, seven, like you said, seven plus six months. And you said the toughest, what was, so what was that like for you? Like, let's talk grad week. Let's talk about graduation, the whole thing. Like, you know, so obviously it's festive because you're seeing all your, your classmates, company mates you've been with for four years. I mean, it's, it's, it's an event. Like we're kind of separating, going our ways, you know, it's, it's, it, but what was that like, I guess, that grad week experience? Because there's a bunch of other people that are staying back. I mean, you've got grad assistants. You've got people that are like, um, you know, I guess really just grad assistants that are going to be sticking around yeah. there that are like, yeah. like you know, second yeah. lieutenants, but they're going to still be around West Point, right? Yeah, and, and I, I, I don't think I knew anything about a grad assistant. I mean, I wasn't, a, you know, on a, on a team or anything like that. So that even that concept was new to me. So, yeah, I, I was just trying to get out of the way. I mean, I, I remember, you know, um, Lance Ashworth and, you know, his girlfriend at the time, now his wife, you know, she lived nearby. It's like, Hey, we're going to have a party. We're all going to go over to, you know, Cindy's house. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to bail on that one. I mean, I, I just got to get out of the way because, um, this is no longer my party, you know? So I got out of the way that graduation week. I did not attend, uh, sorry, Jamie, I did not attend your graduation, but that, that would have just been too much. I, I don't know where I was, but I can tell you I wasn't there. I was heading down the road. Hmm. Yeah, I the, obviously there must be some classmates that are actually attending the graduation and, and being part of it are, are being, you know, in the crowd. So like that's got to be a tough situation and tough to be there, but you know, as I was saying before, like in our in our pre-call, 
you got a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about being a December grad. Like being a December grad, it comes with a certain stigma that you just don't appreciate. And but there's also a unique experience about it too. So can you reflect a little bit more about like what that yeah, means? I mean, let me let me start with the second one there. I mean, yeah. So I came back to I I did that extra summer, and you pointed out, well, that was an extra summer. I mean, I never mind say like, hey, you know what, West Point? I just want to go home and chill for three months because I've already done four summers. But yeah, I did a fifth summer, so I did you know drill cadet and airborne, and then I did these um, barracks and something else, and I did a, a fifth summer where I did. Um, CTLT at Fort Polk and Air Assault School with basically class of 92 people. So that was kind of semi-normal um, until I came back to West Point in August of 91. And um, that, you know, that was brutal. Driving back onto the, the post and just knowing pretty much everybody I know is gone. And they're off, you know, doing their thing at OBC or whatever the case was. And at that point, you know, I'm walking back into Bradley Barracks and, you know, for, for the, whatever, ninth time, ninth semester. And it's like, it, it was some combination of just disbelief. And I, you know, like you said, I saw it coming two and a half years earlier, but it was still just this unbelievable, like, I can't believe this is happening. I'm going to go put on, you know, my cadet uniform and head back to class while everybody else I know is gone. That was really something. Now, did they put you back in A2 with your form, your company that you were part of for four years? Yeah, so I was in A2, uh, back in the short wing of Bradley Barracks. You know, a year earlier, I'd been company commander of A2, and now I was member of squad, December grad in A2. And when I walk back into Bradley Barracks, you know, I'm seeing a bunch of the 92 guys, and we're talking, and they're like, well, you know, Al is here. And, you know, before cell phones and all that. So I'm like, what are you talking about? So my classmate, Al Brenner, um, had gotten caught up in the Cal English debacle and gone to summer school for Cal English. And that was the last I knew of it. Well, with a bunch of other people, he had failed Cal English again in August. So he was a December grad, which was news to me. So just to, to back up a step, Al and I were in the same squad first semester of plebe year. Um, you know, I was a hockey player. He's, he's dual citizen, uh, U.S. and Canada. So our squad was the Hoser squad at Plebes. And Joe McGee, like I said, Major General Joe McGee was our team leader. So the Hoser squad was reunited in Bradley Barracks four years after the fact. So they roomed us together. And, yeah, we were both still on A2. They roomed us together. We sat at the same tables in the mess hall for all four months. Oh, that's, they, they basically said, here's two December guys. Let's leave them alone. Um, so we got through it together with a bunch of other people, you know, the whole cow English thing and a bunch of others, as well as a couple of grad assistants who I didn't realize they were going to be around. You know, we would bump into uh, Chad Michelson on the basketball team and Anthony Noto and Otto Leon on the football team at the prep school. And we'd see them once in a blue moon, which was pretty cool just to see a familiar face. Uh, I, we have a couple of comments coming through here. Rob Gutierrez is reflecting on a similar experience of having to come back at the end of that semester, it's like, God, that sucked. Like, good point, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe. But, you know, when you're a December grad, it's a weird existence because most uniforms, you have your branch insignia. So you get accustomed to seeing this wave of reaction through a crowd. Like, you're walking across central area when it's crowded. People would see your branch insignia, and you'd see these steps. First, they would say, hey, that guy's got branch insignia. 
why don't you have branch insignia? The only time you get branch insignia is like, what, February or November or whatever. Like, why does he already have that? Oh, he must have got it last year. That means he did, oh, he's a December grad. Let me get out of this guy's way because A, he doesn't want to be here, and B, he's from a year group <laughs> me where at a place where everything's based on, you know, year group and tenure and all this kind of stuff. So the, 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 it, the crowd would part like the Red Sea as people realized, let alone one December grad. If there were two of us, it was me and Al, it was like 10 times the effect. So you said that there was one time you guys were sitting in the mess hall, just kind of like staying after the first delight, right? And then here, come, by the way, this is the same guy that we mentioned. This is the yeah. two-star, he's now a two-star general, Omar Jones, brigade commander, class 92. He comes over to like, kind of, not quite haze you guys, but like, hey, get, you got to get out of the mess hall, right? So tell me about yeah, that experience. Lunch was, lunch was over. The entire lunch was over. Everybody was gone. But there was probably like class meetings or something. Well, the only class meeting for December grads, you know, it was just me and Al hanging out at our table. So we're sitting there. We had like an hour to kill till class or whatever. So we probably sat there for 20 minutes after the entire place was empty. And we're just shooting the ball and killing time till December. And, yeah, the first captain comes walking through, heading out the front door. And he spots the two of us sitting at our table against the wall. And he starts to cut over towards us because he's going to, you know, chuck us out of the mess hall. And he got about... 20 or 30 feet and just stopped <laughs> both of our, both of our branches. And he just stopped in his tracks and he was like, um, uh, guys, are, are you thinking about heading out soon? And we were like, as soon as they let us, Omar, as soon as they let us. You're like, just doing about face and draw fire. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, they say whatever rank you are, there's somebody that outranks you. And I think that that fit the situation. And well, except we were talking about this too. Like, it may be that the highest rank in the military is being a first at West Point because like <laughs> you, like everybody, like everybody wants to talk to the firsties, like even the general officers, you know, they want to say what's going on with these, you know, these cadets, like let's, let's understand what, what their perspectives are, you know? So like, you know, and you're at, you outrank everybody at West Point, obviously yeah. that might be the highest yeah. rank you've, you ever have as being, and maybe the highest of all ranks is to be a December grad, you know, first a year because nobody's going to, nobody's going to mess with you then. Yeah, I mean, there was it was a strange it was a strange relationship with a place that everything's based on you know hierarchy and tenure and all that kind of stuff, and it even I mean it even followed me afterward. I mean, a fit, you know you graduate in December that's fiscal year ninety two, so we were class, we were fiscal year ninety two we were group ninety two members, but when the class of ninety one promotion list came out for captain, my name was on it. So the battalion commander at Fort Bragg calls the people together. It was me and Todd Schmidt, who was A2, and Phil Corrin, who was A2, and a couple ROTC guys. He says, hey, you guys have been promoted, selected. You've been selected for promotion to captain. So I was like, that, that doesn't sound right. So I circled back to them, and I was like, I, I don't think that's right. And they said, yeah, that's that's correct. We're going to, your year group 92, your file should not have gone up for promotion. So we're going to delete that. But obviously, you're in good shape for next year. Well, next year, the list came out, class 92, fiscal year 92. My name was not on it. So I said, well, what's going on? And they said, well, we actually forgot to remove the promotable status from your file in the computer. So this time your file did not go in front of the promotion board and you have not been selected for promotion. I said, well, I was, that was a year ago. They said, yeah, it doesn't count. We have to put your file in front of a promotion board. Well, they didn't have any promotion boards coming up for like six months. So I went from being selected below, effectively below the zone to captain due to an administrative error 
to becoming the most senior first lieutenant in the regular army because I was a lieutenant for four and a half years before they figured out how to promote me to how to pin captain's bars on me through the not one error but two. It was crazy. It's funny. I could see how that how that could happen too. Like you know, just although yeah. you would think that there's enough of these situations, but. I saw it happen with somebody who was actually ROTC, but in Korea, same situation. He didn't get promoted. Something weird about his start date. He he got promoted, didn't get promoted, got promoted. Then he got back pay. It's just crazy stuff. Yeah, my deputy brigade commander was was raising a lot of noise because he was getting ready to retire himself. He didn't have much to lose, so he was chewing people out, and they basically told him to to shut up and, you know, it was going to happen on their own time. That's what happened. You know, I was talking Basically, to, by the time they, they figured it out, I, I put in paperwork to leave the Army. I was talking to our classmate, Colonel Kelly Laughlin, Ph.D., also a December grad, uh, yeah. Cal English uh, casualty. And he was saying that as a result of him being a December grad, his yeah. mandatory retirement date is six months later. So when we go to our 30th reunion, he will be the only active duty colonel in our class. Because everybody wow. else will have been promoted to general, but or they will have retired. But he will actually still be in uniform. I mean, there, there's probably a couple other exceptions. I know, like Eddie Bay yeah. has a break in service, whatever. But that right. December grad is what made him actually have a, a later uh, mandatory retirement date. Well, it, yeah, and it, you kind of think it's over with when you graduate. But I mean, even at West Point, it had impacts in ways I didn't anticipate. I mean, you know, the the engineering curriculum was you know on a certain schedule. And I remember one semester being in class the first day and they're like, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And this is a review and that's a review. And I said to the professor afterward, you know, this is day one, you're talking about review. I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, that's all material from whatever, ME 304. I said, I haven't had that yet. He said, that's a prerequisite for this course. I said, well, I have it next hour. Does that count? I mean, and then I explained my story. He said, well, they've double stacked you to get you caught up to the engineering curriculum because all your engineering classes are going to be done by June of 91. So they had to put the prerequisite on top of another one. Mm. So I, I wasn't counting on that one. I, you know, had, I had a break, I had a 12 month break between first semester Russian and second semester Russian because second semester Russian is only taught in the spring. <laughs> wasn't counting that one either. It seems to me that with December grads, there's kind of like three broad brush stories and each one has a unique experience, a similar, similar but unique experience, right? You've got your, you've got your discipline issues. People have gotten in trouble to the point where they say you need another, another six months of, of uh, development before we let you go, right? You've yeah. got your academic people, people that have had challenges academically, so they got to like take additional classes, and and you got unique situations like yours, right? Which is like you know, for lack of a better term, but like a cadet in good standing, but something else happens, so you get extended, right? So you take those first two categories, uh, well, you know, they're walking on thin ice, like a lot of the the time. Like, you're not walking on thin ice as much. Did you find that there was a distinction between your experiences that way? Like, was there, like, were were you like kind of the one looking out for everybody else saying, hey, listen, let's make sure that, you know, we get you squared away academically or we keep you on the straight and narrow. Let's make sure you, you know, you balance your checkbook. God forbid you have a stupid balance check. Like what, what was, uh, what was that like for you? 
No, I mean, the short answer is there wasn't that kind of organization for our class, which I think is regrettable. I mean, I knew my situation. I was roommates with Alan and his situation. And, you know, I knew Brett and his, Brett Peckis and his situation. But, you know, for the most part, you're on your own. And I, I think that's a mistake. Um, you know, with, with Al, he, he had to get through Cal English. Um, Brett was the same way. And, you know, there was a handful of other people. That, but in my case, I had not taken Cal English yet because, you know, I crammed in all these engineering classes. So I was taking for the first time that December semester including in a class with about 10 of my classmates who needed to pass it. And there was so much of a debacle with Cal English that our class was taught by the head of the English department. We had an 06 teaching us Cal English because these guys were given one more chance to pass Cal English. And it was just a, you know, a world of attention on this thing. So he gave us all the opportunity to take Cal English a little bit ahead of the final exam. We probably took it around Thanksgiving, just the December grads. So there was so much pressure on that test. And I remember Al went up to the hockey center to skate because he was nervous and, you know, we were all waiting on our grades. So Brett showed up at my room and he said he had passed and I got on the computer, saw that I had passed and Al given me his password or whatever. So I log in, I see that Al had passed. So Brett says, where is he? I said, he's up at the holiday center skating. So Brett calls up there and says, Al, you passed. And there was so much pressure. Al didn't believe Brett. So he says, put Mackie on the phone. So I get on the phone and he says, what's the deal? I said, you pass. And there's this silence and he goes, I'll be right there. And he hangs up and Brett's like, what do you say? I said, he'll be right here. It was like some kind of sitcom, like where the guy says that. And then four seconds later, he <laughs> no, walks no, no, in the no. door. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the world record is from getting from the Hollander Center to the short wing of Bradley Barracks, but Al broke it. And we're standing there waiting for him, and he didn't even talk to us. He just went to the computer, looked at his grade, and then we all just went nuts. It was four and a half years of the whole thing, and, and you know, all of us were going to graduate. Wow. And so, uh, and obviously, Kelly Laughlin was one of those, you know, Cal English, um, you know, December graduates and a few others. But tell me yeah. about the ceremony. Tell me about the December grad ceremony. Like, what, what was that like, the build up to it? Like, you know, you, you come back from from Thanksgiving break, come back from yeah. Army Navy. We beat Navy that year, I think, right? So, yeah, yeah. and so now what's that like? Like, what's your, what's your grad week like going up in, into December? Well, that's, that's where, you know, you talk about chipping my shoulder. Um, I, I, not just on my behalf, on the, the December class, you know, everybody. I, I just, I just don't think West Point lives up to its own standards of leadership. Uh, you know, there, there was nothing for us as a class the entire semester. The only people that I bumped into was a cow English class. I'll give you an example. I wanted to send out invitations for our ceremony, right? I was very proud to be graduating like we all are. So I found our class crest. I found the West Point crest and I talked to a print shop about getting me some invitations. And I mentioned it at cow English. Well, this person wants 10, this person wants 20, this person wants 30. So all of a sudden I'm ordering invitations for the entire December class of 91 because nobody else is doing it. And then we get to the graduation ceremony. You talk about graduation week, it's like, hey, December grads, uh, be at Eisenhower Hall 15 minutes before the ceremony. Okay. So I'm pretty sure in June you guys did a full rehearsal of a 1,000 people figuring out how to graduate. We didn't do that. So they say, you're going to walk up the steps, you're going to get your diploma, you're going to walk down the steps. And, I, you know, and get the fuck out of like, here. <laughs> Don't let the door yeah. hit you now, it's the way out, right? 
that was pretty much the message. And back then it was like, all right, well, we're December grads. That's what you get. And, you know, after I, you know, some years pass and you reflect, you say, wait a minute, we all traverse the same obstacles. We all cross the same finish line. And yeah, like you said, were there academic struggles, were there disciplinary struggles? I mean, you want to go through the class in class and talk about who struggled with academics or with the first class board or with that's the experience we all had. That's a difficult place to get through. And what we have in common is we all got through it and we all graduated. And if you're going to treat the December class, like there's some kind of thing wrong, I say, that's not leadership. Where's the excitement? Where's the joy? Where's the pride? in the fact that you have 20 graduates walking across the graduation stage. Anything short of that is a failure of leadership. You said that my, my diploma, Jamie, my diploma doesn't have an asterisk on it and neither does, Ke- you know, Kelly's in 06, like you said, PhD in engineering. Brett was on the football team that beat Navy and had a Heisman trophy camp finalist on the team. Al Brenner was a four year varsity letterman. What are we supposed to apologize for? Hey, listen. I'm not. I'm not looking to. Def- <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you guys all uh, continue to, uh, you know, uh, support our class gift and 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 be part of our class. And I'm. I'm not here to defend anybody from the academy. And I think. I hope that they've kind of solved for that. You know. Um, well, that's, that's that's my story. And you know, like I said before, it's not something I think about. My wife said to me, "I've never even heard this story before." I mean, but. Yeah, you know, here we are talking about it. So, you know, that's my opinion after a couple of decades of reflection. But, you know, the, the excitement at graduating, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure at West Point I had a greater moment than when Al realized he was going to graduate. I mean, that was just, that was just unbelievable. I wish when we got across, I mean, obviously it's not a realistic thing, but I wish when we all walked off that stage that the rest of the class of 91 was waiting there, like high five and, you know, because it was just fantastic. Good stuff. I do remember similar situation. I had a company mate who was right on the bubble. Like had to get like a, had to get like a C plus or a B minus in that one class that gets over the minimum to get to graduate. Right. And, uh, I remember, so we were in this class with this guy and we said, you know, it was a computer science class and me and Brent Bourne were like, we're going to, we're going to get you, we got you covered. You're going to, it was Sean Crowley was our classmate who, who I'm by the way, playing golf with this Friday. So I'm so looking forward to it. And, uh, he, he, had a similar situation, but along the way, it turned out that this class that we took, which was management information systems, it was a haze. We thought it was like an easy class. It sucked. It was a hard class. And we're like, and like, what do we get Sean into? We're in this stupid class. We're computer science majors. We can barely pass it. And now we have this guy taking it, like opting in as, a, as an elective. So anyway, he, we, we went and spoke to the P like before the test and said, you know, ma'am, just FYI, you know, Cadet Crowley is like on the bubble. He needs a B minus in this class in order to sort of like lift the GPA. So please make sure that if there's any chance he's not going to get a B minus, like come talk to us first. Like we were just completely, and he got, he got the grade. That he, I remember him seeing, he you know, like dialed into his little, like whatever that, 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 uh, you know, 386 machine or whatever that was, and looks into this monochrome monitor and sees the, sees the grade. And I just remember he was so happy. It was like, such an amazing sort of feeling, seeing that joy. And then I also yeah. specifically remember looking back, I mean, seeing him get his diploma 
and just look down at that diploma. It was just great seeing that. So I do, I like, we kind of share these struggles together. And when we see each other kind of like, you know, clear an obstacle, it was just it was so great to see that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the shared thing. It, there's, there's that level of persistence and uh, determination that are just, it, it's true of everybody who's gone through that institute. It's certainly true. The, the December semester squeezes every last bit out of the sponge, that's for sure. So then you go to OBC and you're like very few other West Pointers that are there at that time because we're all basically gone from OBC, right? So it wasn't until you yeah, got was, in the Army that you reunited with your classmates, I think, right? Yeah, so at OBC there was 120 of us and there was one fellow December grad with me in engineers and um, – the class before us, about a month ahead of us on the calendar, was uh, Otto Leone. He had been a graduate assistant, so he was with that class at, at Fort Leonard Wood at the same time I was in my class. I was a little bit behind him, but yeah, so I didn't really catch And, you know, you'd bump into people. Like, when I went to Ranger School after OBC, um, I saw Brett Petkus again and Anthony Noto. Um, so, you know, it was kind of between. But, yeah, when I got to Fort Bragg, everybody else had been there about six months before me. So, like, you know, when I got there, D.A. Sims was already there. I stayed with D.A. when I first got there. I stayed with him for a few days before I got my place and um, ended up living with uh, Joel Quinn and Shaw Yoshitani. Yeah. So you guys must have been summer rangers then, because by the time you finish OBC, you're you're in the summer phase, right? Yeah, I graduated. Uh, I was there from June to September. Um, September of 92, yeah. I, I, I don't know how I, I, I went in the wintertime and I still say it's the best time to go. I mean, it sucks being cold, but only getting one meal a day. I don't know how you can survive in that getting through there like that. When they cut yeah. us back to one, we, we got cut back to one meal on the last like cycle. And I was like, there's a mistake here. Like Sergeant, I'm sorry. There's only like <laughs> half the food in this pickup. That I, <laughs> I just want to draw attention to a logistical mistake is only one half the food what are we going to do? And I was like, Ranger, it's April. You're in summer months. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I, I don't know what meals was like, but, you know, we, we lost some weight in the summer program. I remember when I got to Fort Bragg, um, I in-processed and do all the stuff, and they did a cholesterol test, and they said, uh, you've, you've set the record for the month with high cholesterol. I said, well, I've been eating – like a ridiculous amount of food for the past week since I graduated ranger school. They said, like, they were like worried about my health. They're like, do you feel okay? I said, yeah, I feel great. <laughs> Cause I'm eating, I'm eating food. Did you have to get a flu shot? Do you remember that? The flu shot? You probably didn't have to get a flu shot. I don't, I don't know. I don't remember a flu shot. That was the bane of our existence there. I, like I, that, like, I've not had pain like that in almost anything. That flu shot that they gave us, at, like right, a shot in the ass. It wasn't like a flu shot. It was actually, it was a gamma gobulin shot, like the, the build your immune system. It was a big, 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 big shot. And I think that uh, we had to do the 12 mile road march like the next day or something. So it was like, it was like typical army uh, haze. Yeah, I, I, I don't remember that, but I mean, it, it was always some kind of thing like that. I mean, when we, when we were ready to go to Haiti, um, we did the last minute checks and all that kind of stuff and, you know, ID card and dog tags, whatever. And they did the vision check. So, you know, you read the ABC, whatever. And the guy says, it was like a PFC. He says, um, do you have glasses or contacts? And I was like, no, this is it. He said, well, you're 2040. And I was like, okay. And he said, well, 
you can't deploy unless you're 20, 30 vision or better. So we kind of look at each other and I'd say, well, then I think I need, I know what you need to do. And he said, what's that? I said, you need to write down 20, 30 on your little piece of paper. And he kind of looked at me like, he looked to his left, looked to his right, see where his supervisor was. I mean, you know, come on. Right. Let's, what's the difference? Let's, huh? yeah. let's, let's be real. I mean, can you see me, my commander, like, Hey, I can't get on the airplane. Why not? Well, I thought the S was a five, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, I, we have been talking for a long time. It's, it's amazing how time, how time just flies going through this uh, podcast, you know? And so uh, yeah. we're, uh, you know, I was happy to, you know, hear your story and, and I'm thankfully, I'm, I'm thankful to you for reaching out and, and saying, Hey, I would like to be able to speak more about this concept of a, of being a December graduate and experiences we all went through. And I, I think it was great talking about that stuff and talking about your, your journey through the army and with medical setbacks and, and overcoming them and also your, your professional success. And you mentioned so much about the influence that West Point has had on your successes and helping you kind of push through. I just wonder what final words you might have to kind of leave with our class and some ideas that you have from um, your experiences. Yeah. I, I, uh, I mean, first of all, Jamie, I know you've, you've, you've uh, kind of set this up and, and taken it as a vehicle to talk about our, our fallen classmates. I certainly applaud that and endorse that as well as, you know, you, you spent some time talking about, um, you know, mental health and depression and, and those kind of challenges that are, you know, sometimes stigmatized. I mean, um, so yeah, it's always good to put that on the table and talk about it. Um, I mean, Hey, we, we've all gone through plebe year together. And if you can't, if you can't share with your West Point classmates, you know, some of the, the difficulties you're having, um, you know, you should be able to do that. And, and that's always one-on-one, right? I mean, I don't expect somebody from across the court could have to reach out to me. They're going to reach out to somebody they know but just to encourage our classmates to do that if they're having some of those difficulties. But I think, you know, my thought on the whole thing is, you know, I, I remember being a cadet and as you said, you know, the general officers want to talk to cadets, especially the first team. And they would say these great things, you know, Hey, you're going to, you know, you're going to be leaders. You're going to do all these great things. And I mean, frankly, we graduated and we were second lieutenants without much influence, but here we are, you know, 25 plus years later. And I think it's, it's, it's our time. I mean, to, to make good on those things that all those people said and those aspirations that they had for us as a class. At this point, we know who we are. We know what we're passionate about. We know what our capabilities are. And, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and some other challenges too. And it's, it's time for each of us to do what we can. And this is as much for me as for anybody else. I mean, I'm talking to myself as, as well, but kind of letting everybody else listen. It's, you know, we're, we're capable people and what can we do for the communities around us, the communities that we're part of. I mean, I remember when we first dropped my son uh, at college three years ago, people said, don't go home to an empty house. You know, it's, it's, you don't want to drop your kid and go home and just kind of boohoo about an empty house. So my wife and I turned around and went right out the next day and drove down to Tennessee for the eclipse. You remember about three years ago, there was yeah, a solar the total eclipse. solar eclipse. Yeah. The, uh, I, yeah. I remember it well. It was in August of uh, August of twenty what seventeen, I guess. Yeah, twenty seven. Yeah. So we dropped my son in college, and we drove down to Tennessee, a few hours south of us, into the, the, the zone where you could see the eclipse. And so we got out of the car with a million other people in this tiny little town. There's a couple of guys with telescopes there, and these really nice telescopes. And the guy sees my West Point hat. Well, it turns out he was West Point class of like seventy eight or seventy nine or, or whatever. 
and I'm like, well, what are you doing now? And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I was never like a four-star general or whatever. I'm like, yeah, well, what are you doing? He was almost like embarrassed. He's like, well, for the last 30 years or whatever, I've been teaching high school science in central Jersey. And I also coach the gymnastics team. We're one of the few high schools that have a boys and girls gymnastics team. And he said, I just love it. I love being with the kids and I love, you know, teaching them science and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I mean, he's, he's made a difference in so many people's lives. And it's just cool to know that West Point grads are out there doing that kind of stuff, uh, including members of the class of 91. I think that's an awesome point, man. Thank you for bringing that forward. I mean, like, we don't need, like, some of us are general officers and CEOs, and some of us are, are working in, in, in manufacturing, and we're teachers, and we're clergy, and we're, you know, social workers. And, um, and so it's all about, I think, continuing to give back, you know, like that whole concept of duty shall be done. And I think everybody that I talk to, to a T, when you start sort of like, peeling back the onion and you get this initial bravado of like, this is what I do. This is what, you know, and you kind of like go back to the core of like who we are. Everybody feels good about trying to be part of something greater than themselves, something that connected to our country. You know, I think, and I think that is one very common trait that we all have. And I think it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's unique to, to like, West Point grads or military service people, but it is very common. It's a common thread that everybody has and that, you know, we have this experience and we have this commitment to, to, um, to give back. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard, you know, a while back you were talking to somebody and they talked about how, I don't know if it was plebe year or something, the first time they saw their classmates in, in civilian clothes that they brought with them from high school. And yeah, they realized everybody's got their own style or whatever. And you don't see it at West Point cause we're all in the same uniform, but you know, the commonality of, of the things that brought us to West Point are a lot more uh, fundamental than, you know, whatever neighborhood we come from or, or the clothes that we brought with us when we showed up at West Point, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually Ted Ross who wrote the book spirit mission and was making that observation. He also made the yeah. observation too, saying that like, by the time you graduate, it's like all of your DNA has been spliced. You know, you're, you're, you're more, you're more similar than you are different. And when you're at West Point, you recognize the differences but for the rest of your life, you recognize the similarities and that's, what's going to draw us all together. And it's going to make us, you know, kind of seek each other out for, for guidance and support and, and for a community. And that's really what we are. That's what maybe what this podcast is about is about the community of class of 91 and duty shall be done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thanks again for being my guest tonight. I am so grateful uh, that you reached out to me. Uh, thank you for, um, you know, talking to me about, about these experiences. Uh, thank you for your service to our country and your continued service to our communities and through your leadership. And so grateful to call you a friend and a classmate. So thanks again. And we'll let the credits roll out. You can hang on a little bit and we'll, we'll debrief. Thanks so much. Right. Thank you. Everybody have a great week and um, we'll be back again soon with the old grad podcast. Joining us on this edition of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.